Church, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. This is an incredibly important book in the story of redemption that is unveiled throughout all of Scripture. And as we think of the importance of this book, I want you to think of the importance of the context of where this book falls in Scripture. One of the most important reasons that we are doing this study is that we want to see God's Word in context and see an overview of how each of the books connect, how the story of redemption unfolds. And as we go through book by book, week after week, we can see the connection of each book. And as we read through this and, and go deeper into the context, we can see the context. Now, I want you to think about the importance of context. Okay, the context is understanding the time, the place, the purpose that it was written, the things that are happening around it, the setting, the culture, all these different things. And as we go through this, we're going to look at context. And as you think of the importance of context, I, I want to give it to you in a, in a way that we can understand in modern day. Now, as you read just a, a normal book, the importance of the context matters. When you speak words, the context matters. I heard a, a speaker this week say that he could take random separated words from President Ronald Reagan and make him sound like a communist. Now, if you know his life, he's the farthest thing from a communist. But if you took few words, snippets out of certain speeches, things where he's saying things about other people, what other people have said, you could make it sound like, in his own words, he's a communist. And that's taking things out of context. I want you to think of it another way. Um, my wife and I are coming up on our 27th anniversary, 27 years. That's unbelievable, amazing. You guys pray for Carrie. Uh, she's been putting up with me all these years. But I want you to think in the context of my 27th anniversary that's coming up. I want you to think of a restaurant. Now, the restaurant that I want you to think of is McDonald's. In the context of my 27th anniversary, what do you think of the restaurant McDonald's? It's really bad. It's a terrible idea. My wife doesn't even like McDonald's. And if I bring up McDonald's in the context of us going out to eat, celebrating our anniversary, that is something that is incredibly negative. It's never going to work out for me. Now, another context is I pick up my daughters from school. They didn't eat their lunch that day. They didn't like it very much. And I pick them up, and I haven't had lunch. It's, it's late in the day. We're all hungry. And I say, hey, girls, you want to go to McDonald's? Now, I love McDonald's. They love McDonald's. We're all hungry. McDonald's is a good thing in that context, right? I remember when I went to Nepal, and I ate all sorts of crazy foods over there, and just... I, I enjoyed different foods, but after two weeks of that, I was ready to get home. And when I saw a McDonald's after being out of the country for two weeks, that's a totally different context, right? It's a good thing. It's, it, it was awesome. I was so excited to pull through, get my favorite meal, have the fries when they're the perfect heat, perfect color, fresh, all that stuff. So I got excited about it. So there are different contexts, and if you don't understand the Bible in the proper context. You really don't understand the Bible. And that's why we're going through this in the order that the Bible has been given to us in the New Testament. And I want you to realize the importance of understanding what's going on around this. So Samson in the book of Judges 
was the final judge in the book of Judges. And Eli, who we're going to be introduced to in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've already seen him in Scripture, but Eli lived at the same time as Samson and Samuel, who is born towards the end of Eli's tenure as the priest. And the lives of the final judge that we see in Judges, Samson, and Eli, who is also a judge and also the priest in Israel, and his sons are priests, as we're going to see. Um, and then this young boy, Samuel, that God raises up as the final judge. Samuel is the final judge. Their lives are over, overlapping, and as you remember what happened in the life of Samson, what's happening in the life of Eli, and then Samuel, it helps us understand the times. I want you to remember that in Judges, which in the Hebrew Bible, it goes straight from Judges to Samuel. And Samuel is one book. We, they split it up in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the New Testament. And they split that up so it was easier to follow and read and to split up the long, long stories that, that are revealed. So we're going to cover this a book at a time. So it went straight from Judges to Samuel, but the book of Ruth has been inserted in between these two books because it ties them together. And it helps us to see the context of the line of David that is revealed in the book of Ruth. And then as we move into Samuel, we're going to see that God uses Samuel to establish the kingdom monarchy that is in Israel. Samuel is an incredibly important person as a prophet and a priest. As a matter of fact, Psalm chapter 99, verse 6, shows us the importance of Samuel. It says, Then the Lord said to me, though Moses... Oh, I'm sorry. That's the next one I'm going to read. Psalm 99, 6 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. And then in Jeremiah 15, 1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me yet my heart would not turn toward this people send them out of my sight and let them go god is judging his people but he makes a statement putting moses and samuel together in importance moses moses was the one that established what the law of god and god made a covenant with moses god uses samuel to establish the kingdom the monarchy which is ultimately pointing to Jesus, who is the ultimate king. The book of First and Second Samuel are literary masterpieces. They're recognized throughout even secular culture as amazing stories. The person who wrote this book, we don't believe it was Samuel, but the name was given to the book because he is the one that God used to usher in this new age of the kings. So we see the importance of this book and it is a transition book where they move from this theocracy where God is the king, where God is ruling over his people. They reject him. Yet God gives them what they want and uses it for his own glory. God even overrules the sinful people and uses it to glorify himself. Kings were actually a part of God's plan. We're told of that before the book of Judges, before the book of Ruth and Samuel. It was a part of God's plan, but the way that it came into being was actually through the disobedience and the sin of people. Does that remind you of anything else 
Anything else that was a part of God's plan and it happened through sinful means? How about the death of Jesus Christ? Was it a sin for them to falsely accuse him? Yes, it absolutely was. Was it a sin for them to crucify, betray him, crucify him? Yes, it was absolutely a sin. Pilate sinned. The Jewish elders sinned. The people sinned. The Roman soldiers sinned against their creator by nailing him to a tree. Yet it was all a part of God's plan. God, God overruled the sin of the people and still accomplished his will. As we sang this morning, great is his faithfulness. God is faithful even when we are not faithful. So in this time, flashing back to the book of Judges, there is no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's repeated four times in the book of Judges. Why? Because it's a theme. It's important. And we're moving towards a time where there will be a king in Israel. Ultimately, the time where Jesus reigns and rules as a Messiah and the king over all the nations and the king of the eternal line of David throughout all eternity. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But where we start out in this book, Eli is the priest and his sons, as we see in chapter 2, verse 22, his sons are doing terrible things. They're extorting the people robbing from the people, taking advantage of the people. They're also sleeping with the women that are working at the tabernacle, which is also called the temple of God. This is before the temple was built, but the words tabernacle and temple were actually used interchangeably because that's where God's presence dwelt. So they are actually sleeping with the women, making a mockery of the ministry. And the Bible says in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. So God is rarely, if ever, speaking to his people. This, this cycle that happened in Judges is happening over and over again. God blesses his people. They forget about him. They go into captivity. He judges them. They pray. He they repent. He restores them, redeems them, raises up a judge to set them free and sets them free. And then he blesses them. Then they forget about him. They just keep going through the cycle. We're starting in the middle of this cycle. And Eli's sons are committing abominations at the very place where God meets with his people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, God speaks to Samuel. You remember the story when the young boy was in the tabernacle and he hears this voice calling him and he runs to Eli and says yes and he says I didn't call you go back to bed and he comes back and he says he hears his voice Eli or he hears his voice Samuel and he comes back he says I didn't call you finally the third time he says it's the voice of the Lord and when God calls out he says speak Lord and God gives him this message, but it's a very difficult message. This is the message he delivers to young Samuel, the young boy. He says, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. 
So let's look at the storyline. This is an introduction. We're seeing the importance of the book. So let's look at the storyline of the book of 1 Samuel. It starts out in a place called Shiloh. Now, this is the place where the Israelites built the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant rested in Shiloh for three centuries. That was the center of the worship of God where his presence dwelt, where the priests offered sacrifices and where the Ark of the Covenant was at. And this is where the tribes of Israel would all come together for feasts and peace offerings. From the time they entered into the land to the time of the prophet Samuel. So this was the central location where the tribes, where the land was divided up into the 12 sections for the 12 tribes. We see that in Joshua 18. So Shiloh is very important in scripture. First of all, it is a place. It is a place, an actual place where God's tabernacle was set up, where his worship existed for three centuries. They actually found this place in 1978. Remember, the Jewish state was established in 1948. And there was a family that dedicated their lives. I was able to meet the daughter of this family. And this family in the 70s dedicated their lives to finding Shiloh. They gave up everything, sold everything, moved to find. They located this actual place, and I was able to stand there. I was able to visit this. They, they did the archaeological digs, and you can see where the, the houses were, where the tabernacle was. There are hills all around Shiloh, and it was like an amphitheater, basically. The people would gather, and they would eat the feast and sit on the hills, and the, the smoke from the sacrifices would be ascending, and there was a city established there. It's, a, it's an amazing place. And I was, as I was standing there, Looking at this place, it was raining on us. It was a day a lot like today. It was raining on us, and I was able to see this location and see this family that had dedicated themselves. They actually found the actual place. There's pottery. There's shards all over this property still to this day. And someone was saying, why is there so much broken pottery here? Well, when they were reading Scripture, they discovered that after they would eat the meal, the feast, celebrating all that God did, they would take the plates and they would break their plates. It was a sign of the worship. You can read the story in scripture. And they found this broken pottery all over the place, all over the hillsides. That basically proves that these stories are actually true. Not only do we see that Shiloh is a place, but it is a promise Shiloh came from the word to be at ease or to receive peace. It is where peace is given and the word was actually connected to the Messiah. In the Talmud, the word Shiloh was interpreted directly as a reference to the Messiah. He's called the Shiloh. He was the one that Shiloh would come. So it's a place, it's a promise. This is where Jacob gives his blessing to his sons and he blesses Judah on his deathbed. And this is what he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes to him. It's a direct reference to the Messiah. And to him shall the obedience shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the Messiah, 
So Shiloh is a place, it's a promise, it's also a person. Jesus is the prince of Shiloh, the prince of Shalom, the prince of peace. He is the one who comes and gives rest. He's the one who comes as the peace giver, the Messiah. So in this place, we find this story that develops where this woman who is barren, not only is she barren, but she is persecuted by the people around her. She was one of two wives of this man who is coming to worship God. And every year when they came, she was sorrowful about not having a child. And the other wife of this man has multiple children and she mocks Hannah and makes fun of her and persecutes her. And the women in that day, the Israelite women, prayed for a son because they were praying to be the mother of the promised Messiah. This was a thing that we see all the way up till the time of Mary and even after that when women did not believe that the Messiah had come through Mary. And God answers her prayer. And after God answers her prayer, she sings this song or writes this poem and it becomes a prophecy. And I want to read this to you because we see a woman in this instance prophesying. We see a woman in this instance praising God and it actually becomes scripture. God uses this woman to write scripture. God's favor is upon women throughout scripture and we cannot belittle that. I want you to hear these words. She says, it says, this is 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bow of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a messianic prophecy where she prophesies that God will give strength to his king. Remember, there is no king at this time. It hasn't even been established yet. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She prophesies this and her child, Samuel, is going to be the one who anoints King David. It's amazing how God works in scripture unfolding. So 
Samuel becomes Eli's successor after God judges Eli's sons. It's a very interesting story. They told it to us when we were at Shiloh. And uh, Eli, in his old age, 98 years old, was a very heavy, very heavy man. He was sitting on the wall, outside, a rock wall outside of the tabernacle. And he received word this runner comes running into town. They had taken the ark of God into battle against God's will. And Eli's sons were leading the charge. They were both killed and the ark of God was taken away from God's people by the Philistines. This runner comes back, this herald to deliver this news. And this old, very overweight man is sitting on this rock wall. He hears all the noise of crying in the city. The, the herald comes to him and he says, tell me what has happened. And he tells him, your sons are dead and the ark of God has been taken. He probably has a heart attack, falls off the wall, breaks his neck and dies. Fulfilling the prophecy that God had given that he was going to judge the house of Eli. And Samuel, young Samuel, becomes Eli's successor. So in this book, there's so much. Again, we don't have time to cover it all. But I pray that God will stir your heart up to dive deeper into this book and to read it. So in chapter 1 through chapter 7, we see the story of Samuel. Starts off in a powerful way where Hannah comes in, prays. God answers her prayers. He is given to God, dedicated to God. After he's weaned, he goes and serves in the temple, becomes the successor. He is a prophet and a priest. And he is the one that God raises up to transition into this time of the kings, this monarchy. And as I said, this is the will and the plan of God, but the way it happened was very much against God's will. The people demanded a king for the wrong reasons. They rejected God and they wanted to be like the other nations around them. So God, like he does many times in scriptures, says, okay, that's what you want. I'm going to give you what you want. Have you ever prayed for something that you thought you wanted? You got it and then you realized it was a curse. There was a time in the wilderness when the people were praying for meat and God says, okay, you want meat? You don't want what I've given you? I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat until it comes out of your noses and they had so much meat, the quail meat came into the camp and they had so much it made them sick. This is another time where we see they want something and God tells them, you're going to get what you're asking for. You're going to get a king, but he is going to oppress you. He is going to take advantage of you. He is going to oppress you and tax you. And there will be a day when you will cry out because of your king that you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you. So God judges his people by using Samuel to anoint the first king of Israel, who's this iconic figure. His name is Saul. He stands head and shoulders over everybody else. He's the tallest, the best looking, the strongest, and that's what the people want. They've rejected God and automatically they turn into a celebrity culture where they lift up the best looking, the strongest, the most wealthy, the one that, the one that, the, that was the choice of the people. And the story of Saul is actually a tragedy. It starts off really well. He starts off humble. 
but he ends in incredible failure, incredible disobedience, incredible dishonor, and God judges him. But God uses him. He uses him to punish his people. Remember, God would use the pagan enemy nations to judge his people, to bring them back to him? Well, he used Saul to judge his people, to oppress his people. There's no more judges. Samuel was the final judge. He anoints the king that basically takes his power away. He's still a prophet. He's still a priest, but he is no longer the one ruling over Israel. And he willingly gives away this power. Think about that. How many people fight for power? How many people want something they can't get? And if they get it, they use it for the wrong way. Well, Samuel was a man that was willing to give power away in obedience to God. But this first king's life was a tragedy and it ended in failure. Then the next section, chapter 16 through chapter 31, is the story of Saul and the end of his life and ultimately King David. David is God's king. He's a man after God's heart. We see in chapter 15 that the Lord rejects Saul as king. But it takes time for this story to unfold. Have you figured out that it takes time, a lot of times, for God's promises to come true in your life? For the desires that God gives you so many times, these things that we want, that we pray for, it takes time for God's story to develop. We've got to be patient. We've got to be faithful to God as we know he is being faithful to us. Those who delight themselves in him, he will give them the desires of their hearts. That's scripture. So David is God's king. He's a man after God's heart. Chapter 15, the Lord rejects Saul. Chapter 16, Samuel anoints David to be the next king. But again, he has to wait years before this happens. Chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. Chapter 18, we see David and Jonathan, Saul's son, have this friendship that is honoring to God, that is honoring to the story of what God is doing. And while Saul is repeatedly trying to kill David, his son Jonathan is being this rescuer, this deliverer who helps God's chosen man and enables him to escape Jonathan's father, Saul. Yet we also see repeatedly as Saul is pursuing David, trying to kill David, David spares Saul's life multiple times. He says, I cannot lay a hand on God's anointed. He could have taken Saul's life. God delivered him into his hands, and he was trusting God's providence rather than taking things into his own hands. How many times in Scripture do we see people taking things into their own hands? Think of Abraham. He was waiting on God's promised son, Isaac, and he and his wife, well, his wife came up with a plan, but they agreed to it and said, We're gonna, why don't you just take Hagar, have a son by her. That can be God's promise. He took things into his own hands. We see character after character in Scripture. People are not waiting on God. They take things into their own hands, and they regret it. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We're called to wait on God. Ultimately, in chapter 25, we see the death of Samuel, and then we see the death of Saul. And 2 Samuel is the book that starts talking about when David is anointed king. And we see his reign and how he unites the kingdom of Israel and the 12 tribes. 
So let's look at the themes in this book. That's the storyline. Let's look at the themes. Number one, we see the theme is that God's faithful to us. God is faithful in spite of evil. God's providence. He rules and he reigns over the affairs of men. Do we make legitimate choices? Yes, we do. Do we disobey? Yes, we do. Do we sometimes obey and walk in obedience? Yes, but God's providence overrules all of those things. We see this time and time throughout Scripture, how God uses this thing in Hannah's life where she is being persecuted, yet that is the very thing that drives her to pray for something, and she gets to be a part of God's story in a powerful way. And she is still revered as one of the most important women in all of Israel. When I went to Shiloh and heard all the stories and and read all the plaques and and looked at everything and then thought of the story of redemption, everything comes that God does in Israel through the line of David. And she got to be a part of that. God is ruling over terrible situations. Church, we need to remember that situations that happen in our lives are not separated from God, from His oversight, from His providence. He uses them to make us into the image of Christ. Time and time again, David and Goliath, Saul's search for the donkeys, all these different things, we see God's faithfulness and His providence in spite of evil and disobedience. The second theme that we see is kingship. The the kingship, the monarchy was established because God as the divine king uses people. And he uses David ultimately to rule over his people and establishes David's line as the line that would be the eternal kingdom and the eternal throne. And ultimately God himself would come and rule as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He says the scepter will never depart from Judah. There were times when it looked like the scepter had departed, that the king, the kingdom was done away with, that Israel was wiped out, yet God continually brings his people back, restores his people until Christ comes. And the story is not over yet. So the kingdom, kingship, is one of the main themes in this book. We also see that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. That's a story we see from Genesis to Revelation. God casts down the proud. He resists the proud. He rejects the proud. God fights against the proud. When we exhibit pride in our lives, we're challenging God to a fight. We don't think about it like that, but God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The way up is the way down. You want to be exalted in God's kingdom? Humble yourself. Serve God. Love people. Don't try to exalt yourself. Promotion comes from God. And if you desire something in your life that you don't have, pray to God for it. Do what Hannah did. Go to God. She acknowledged there's nothing she could do to receive what she wanted, to receive her desires, to accomplish it on her own. She was barren. The Bible says God closed her womb. But through prayer, God exalted the humble and he resisted and rejected the proud. Application. 
God is still sovereign in the 21st century. God is sovereign today over the affairs of our world, over the affairs of our lives, and we are called to submit to him and to trust him. It's easy to read the book of 1 Samuel and see God's hand at work. It's harder to look at my life and see God's hand at work. It's more difficult to look at the things that are going on in our world and see how God can overrule what's happening in Washington, D.C., what's happening around the world. It's hard for us to see it, but we can trust God's character when we can't see his hand at work in our world. That's what we need to walk away from this story. And ultimately, we need to realize we're not the king. We have a king. We're to submit to him as king of kings and lord of lords. And before we close, I want you to think about the Christ connection. Shiloh is a direct type of Christ. It's pointing to Christ. This place, this location, this promise pointed to a person. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is our Shiloh. He is our rest. He is our peace giver. We also see that Samuel is a type of Christ. Think about this. Samuel was blessed before he was born. The same way that Jesus was. He ministered. He, he had a miraculous birth. He ministered in the temple. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was righteous. And he established this new reign of the king. Samuel established the new kingdom, the new reign, and Jesus Christ came and established the eternal kingdom as the king of kings and lord of lords. We also see that David is a type of Christ in so many ways. I'm just going to mention a couple. David's a shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd. David was the anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one. David fought for his people. David defeated the forces of evil. David was given an eternal throne through the covenant, through the Davidic covenant that God established with him. And ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of the son of David. That was one of his titles. He is the son of David. He sits on the throne of his father, David, forever and ever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And we see the gospel in the book of 1 Samuel because God's salvation is a person. It's not a program. It is a person. God was in the process. We can see his eternal plan. Looking back how he unveils the story of redemption throughout scripture. And especially in 1 Samuel. And see that all of this is pointed to the coming Messiah. The story of Eli. The story of Samuel. The story of Judges. The story of Saul. The disobedience of the people. The establishment of God's chosen man. The man after God's own heart. The Davidic covenant. All these things happen for one reason. For the Christ to come, to deliver his people from their sins. God himself came to rescue us. He is the eternal king and he is the eternal prince of peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of 1 Samuel that reminds us that even in difficult times, even when we don't see your hand at work, you're still sovereign your providence is ruling and reigning over all. You are still King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus, you are on the eternal throne. We serve a king, and it's you. 
Lord, remind us that we're not the king, that we're not the one that makes all the decisions. We're called to obey you, to submit to you. And God, as we walk in obedience, and as we honor you, love God, love people, you can use our lives to make a difference. We get to be a part of your story. And God, when we're connected to your story, we have eternal significance, eternal meaning, eternal purpose. Don't let our lives be wasted pursuing our own goals, pursuing our own dreams. God, may we have lives that are connected to your eternal will, and ultimately, may our lives glorify you. And Lord, even through our mistakes, as David had many, many mistakes, Samuel, Saul, Eli, these great men of God that you used in powerful ways, yet many of them disobeyed and fell. And even your own people were in this cycle of disobedience. God, may we never turn our backs on you. May we truly repent of our sins, come back to you, and trust you to restore us, to redeem us, and to use our story, our broken stories, for your honor and for your glory. And God, we ask that you do all these things. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.